Okay. Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Warfighter podcast. I am Tom Constable and this is Colin Hillier. Hello. How are you, Tom? All good. I did get a message from one of the listeners asking whether or not, you know, concerned listener asking whether or not my Starlink was back up. I can confirm it's back up and I can confirm it was the cable. Just in case you're wondering. Don't worry. Probably worth pointing out to listeners that best not to mount it on the bird table where the gar- when the gardener walks past, <laughs> then it stops working. Put it on the roof. No, it, Pro, tip, no, Pro tip. We, we were recording the podcast, an interview, a great interview yesterday, and um, just to exp- elaborate a bit more on on that because I'm moving house soon. I, I haven't actually mounted it on the house. It's just literally in the middle of the garden. I had to move it off the garden for someone that came to mow the garden. For it. I was very lucky that someone came in and did that for me. But every time they went past the Starlink cable, I disconnected, which is not conducive to a good quality recording for an episode who knew modern problems i've got my own problems because i was heavily influenced by our ai episode so i thought i'd install ai into my garage now i can talk to the garage and the door will open great now is that ai well, I yeah, I think I mean I could I could make it do almost anything as long as it's related to opening and closing the main door. I hope that it has immeasurably improved your quality of life, mate. That's all I can say. Well, yeah, it's all good fun. <laughs> Probably worth adding that we had a nice comment from one of our listeners. Do keep them coming. Just to summarise it, it was talking about that AI episode and actually looking at talking around what levels of fidelity do we need on AI. So very insightful, I thought and do keep the comments coming. We'll always, always read all of them. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for your email. This introduction is actually going to be a bit of an AI slant, which I don't know, don't know why that's happened. But did I mention that I'm kind of a big deal? No, but it's, let's hear more about that. <laughs> As you become this personality, you know, running this really super successful podcast, people start you, you know, You've been invited you. to go somewhere, haven't you? You've been invited somewhere. Tell, tell us I, more about this. I have, you know, and you get invites and it's embarrassing. You have to turn some down. But I've been very fortunate to be invited to the uh, to be a moderator uh, on a, a MISO panel. So it's the Military Information Supporting Operations panel. It's a remote event, a virtual event, where for my sins, I've been asked to help moderate the democratizing AI. How do we compete against our adversaries in the race for AI supremacy? You know, it's lucky because I'm I'm an expert. (laughs) Well, you know, if you listen to that episode, then yeah, I think think you'll be be a level up. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to it. It's on the, if anyone's listening and they want to come and join us, loads of panels. The, The day starts on the 26th of January. You just have to go. I'll put the link to sign up in the show notes. We're the first panel. Starts at 10.35 UK time. But there's obviously a whole host of other conversations happening around information and data and AI. And if you want to come and watch me blag my way through a moderating panel, <laughs> actually, I'm really looking forward to it. And I hope they've asked me to come because I'm going to try and do what I do on the podcast, which is ask those questions, make sure that people are following the journey of the conversation. It's not just two very intelligent people and experts kind of showing how intelligent they are. They've got someone like me on who can almost dumb it down to a level that I can understand. And hopefully, therefore, everyone will enjoy the- and learn something valuable. Talking about exciting things to come, our schedule is rapidly filling up for the season. I think we're probably almost there, but probably worth shouting out to our sponsor, Improbable because there's a couple of episodes coming from them where we're actually looking specifically at some of their technology and projects. Yeah, and also their approach to the industry as well, which is unique and definitely worth exploring. And this week we have Al Rowan, ex-British Army officer who runs a company called Service. They are heavily involved in applied data analytics. I think there's a lot of good theory spoken about data analytics, but Al is going to be talking about the practical side of it, what it's really like to try and harness data, do data wrangling, and also, again, try and break down some of the myths and misconceptions that surround use of data and, and analytics. I'm really grateful for Al coming on the show. Yeah, it's a great chat. Hello and welcome to Al Rowan. As normal, we like to have a bit of a international theme this podcast, and this is no different, is it, Al? Well, no, I'm, I'm joining you from Scotland. It's like, <laughs> being international. So you're actually in Scotland as well, not just not, from Scotland. No, I'm actually in Scotland as well. Oh, and, this makes uh, it all, all more authentic. Yes, exactly, exactly. So the topic we've chosen to cover is data analytics, which is something we hear a lot about these days. But First, before we get into that, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got started with this? Yeah, sure. Ex-infantry officer, and you're probably going to be asking me later how on earth did an ex-infantry officer get involved in data analytics, but I'll hopefully cover that later. I was in the army for 10 years during the Tony Blair years, where we were essentially on operations back-to-back, non-stop, for the whole 10 years. Six months here, six months there, Iraq, Afghanistan, Northern Ireland to begin with, East Timor, Bosnia, all the kind of usual places. 
And then got to the end of my time and decided it was time to leave the army and set up a family and couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do. Ended up moving to London, where I met my now wife, and somehow managed to get into the whole world of operational analysis by working as a contractor with DSTL at the Land Warfare Centre while I was figuring out what I wanted to do, to do, and then ended up doing it for a bit longer than I thought. From there, obviously, you set up a consultancy or sort of organisation that sort of specialised in this area. What was your main motivation then from just being a humble contractor to sort of setting up a team? It all actually began, sadly, through the death of a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Rupert Thornlow who was the commanding officer of the Welsh Guards. He tragically died in July 2009 as a result of an ID attack in Afghanistan. I'd actually met Rupert many, many years ago when I first joined the army in South Amar. The Welsh Guards were the Rumont Battalion there, and it was my first ever operational tour. And Rupert said hello to me, and I thought he was a really nice bloke. And years later, imagine my surprise when I was working at the Land Warfare Centre in something called the Experimentation Branch, where Rupert's file came across my desk. And I was being asked to do a study into the problems and issues around what happened to Rupert. And I guess it was the army's way of mitigating some of the problems that they were having with the increase in roadside bomb ID attacks that the insurgents had been placing down in the, the southern part of Afghanistan. So I got given this folder and I wasn't really happy with the way in which some of the wording was around the incident that happened. And there's almost like a sort of blame culture against Rupert, which slightly annoyed me. So I wanted to try and actually get to the nuts and bolts of what happened. So I managed to convince the Land Warfare Centre that we should do a down and dirty experiment where I got essentially a platoon's worth of soldiers who just come back from Afghanistan and then try to rerun and measure exactly what happened during the incident to try and work out what the issues were. We went up to Salisbury Plain. We tried to recreate what happened as a kind of after action view. And then we measured it using tactical engagement systems or TES systems to try and get uh, an idea of where people were standing, the effects of blast, etc, etc. And what we worked out was actually the issue wasn't necessarily, as people were suspecting, which was around people weren't doing the tactic properly. What was actually happening was that they were using the Valon metal detector incorrectly. So for those of you who don't know, a Valon metal detector is a very good metal detector. And when we started speaking to the troops and did a bit more of a survey, Actually, soldiers who'd just come back or were about to go on tour thought that the Valon metal detector had a detection range of about one and a half feet. Actually, when you understand how the Valon metal detector works, it's inches. So they were being taught the incorrect use of a piece of equipment. Quite a few of them coming back somehow managed to almost like dodge the bullet because they'd been using the system incorrectly and hadn't understood how the thing worked. So we set about trying to explain this to the organization. And there was kind of three key things that we figured out that were going wrong. The first thing was that the guys were sweeping the metal detector too quickly. And what was happening was that because they were sweeping it too quickly, the way in which the detector worked it would send uh, some energy into the ground that would bounce off a metallic object and then be detected by the detector. And then some kind of alarm would go off. Because they were sweeping too fast, they'd miss the bounce back. Hmm. The other thing was they were keeping the detector too high off the ground, which meant that they weren't actually getting to the depth where the devices were being buried. And then lastly, they were doing something called cant. So when they, when they moved the detector, they were essentially reducing the width of the route that they cleared. And that's where there were gaps appearing in this clearance drill. So we sort of had this debate amongst the team that I was working in. And they all looked at me and kind of went, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. What do you know about clearance drills, etc., etc." And I kind of stuck to the facts and ended up having an argument in front of the two-star who's in charge of the Land Warfare Centre between myself and a couple of SO1s and SO2s. And they were being very subjective and passionate because obviously, um, you know, there was a lot at stake here. And I basically just went through the facts, spoke to the general in logic with objectivity. And he turned around to the other military group and said, listen to what he said. You need to change the way in which we train our soldiers and do it now. That was all through the use of objective data and putting your point across in a way which is unemotional because I think a lot of the decision making that I'd sort of noticed in the military is very subjective. Yeah, it's subjective and it's based on what you're taught. It's based on doctrine, it's based on policy, I guess things that are set. So it's interesting and that's probably something we'll come back to. How do you build that case to change mindsets? Yes. I think the first thing that's interesting, because we want to sort of understand a bit more about how you know the different types, but when we say data analytics, uh, I'm conscious that's the word that's used 
commonly. And obviously, we say good things like, hey, we should use more data. These are all good truisms. But what are the common myths or misunderstandings you generally come across when you first talk to either the user or people in industry about this science? I think the they kind of expect this data analytics thing to be some kind of sausage machine that they just shove some data in and they get the answers that they want. That's not how it works. We always use, we use a mantra, which is three words, vision, decision, and precision. So the first thing you need to do in terms of, of vision is understanding what it is you're using that, what's the big picture, what's that data actually involved in, what's the decision that needs to be made as part of the decision process, which is the next step. And the decision that's trying to be made then forms a series of questions or what we call metrics or KPIs that we then try and answer that question and then look for that data within the mess of information that's out there to then try and derive a line between what's the question, what's the KPI, and where's the data to then reformat it together again to then present some kind of insight. Because that's the key thing is there's no point in providing information. You've got to provide an insight that creates some kind of change. And then the last thing linked to all that is about precision because, you know, the old uh, analogy, if you you put shit in, you get shit out. It's the same thing because you've got to start with the right question and all the way through this process, you've got to maintain that precision. Otherwise, the stuff that's coming out is just gobbledygook. So we are quite fastidious and annoyingly rigid about the precision as you go through this process. So we're constantly asking our customers and annoying them with, is that the question you wanted to ask? Is that what you mean? And understanding what they're trying to achieve is the really difficult thing. And I think in terms of data analytics, what people tend to do is they just think it's a a thing that you plug in. It's actually an end-to-end process of which technology is, if you like, a tool that allows you and speeds up the process of the analysis. But actually, you've got to go through the entire end-to-end golden thread to make sure that the stuff coming at the end is actually of use to the end user. And I've heard that that comment before, it always reminds me of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they go, well, the problem is you haven't asked the right question. Yes. You now need a computer that will work out what the question is. You know? yeah. <laughs> you work out the question, then we can actually work on the answer. It's that thing about it's a consultative approach rather than just telling them some stuff. You've got to actually work with our customers to try and figure out what stuff, what change are they trying to make or what are they trying to measure and help you, helping them understand and get to that difficult data, which will help them answer the question. Yeah, I think anyone who's worked with AI or ML, machine learning, framing the query is probably half the battle. Yes. So when we dig into data analytics, I think there's indicated there's three main areas that we can sort of differentiate sort of techniques and approaches. Can you sort of take us through that? One of the the ones we use the most currently is what people term descriptive analytics. So it's your you're getting like your dashboards that you might see off the back of Strava. So it's that immediate understanding of how well have I performed doing a particular task. And at the moment, we're seeing that as a kind of main pool from our customers. They want to have that kind of descriptive, what did I just achieve or did I or did I not achieve my objective in this particular metric? And essentially what that tends to look like is, again, a series of dashboards. That's descriptive, which is, I think most people understand that descriptive analytics piece because they use it every day in the apps that they have on their phone. And could you give a kind of a couple of military examples of descriptive analytics? I've just done a section attack and I want to see how efficient we were or are the different tasks that the kind of the customers are looking at? There's lots of different ways of looking at the, essentially all the data is there and there's lots of da- different ways in which you can cut, if you like, cut the cake and, and uh, using your example there, the, how well did we perform a platoon attack? There's some sort of high-end metrics that you could use, which is, did I achieve my aim of reaching an objective by this time at this level of combat effectiveness? That's a really high level of descriptive metric. But you can break that all the way down to the individuals. And the way that we, particularly the British Army's going in terms of things like CTCP is actually you need to understand the individual input into that collective effect. So that if you're using this, the sports analogy, looking at the feedback that we were getting during the World Cup, all the sports teams were getting individual player feedback at the end of each game to see how they could enhance their performance on the next turn of the handle in the next match. Well, we can do exactly the same now with the, the, the kind of fidelity of the metrics that we're looking at in terms of physiological performance psychological inputs, team efforts, collective far effect, how well they communicate together. All these kind of things all add up to an understanding of how the collective efforts, performance can be enhanced. Yeah, layers and layers of complexity there. It's building up that layering and understanding and helping our customers 
navigate through that layering and, and helping them where they can make those changes. It's that relationship with the customer, understanding what they want and helping them navigate their data. Once you've built dashboards, you've got them looking at immediate performance, feedback. What's the next two areas that you can offer on top of that? Where we're going is there's two other part types of analytics that we're really focusing in and burrowing in on now is predictive analytics. So how can you take data, look at a number of either experimental or training events and start to predict the outcomes of those events before they actually happen. An example might be we're running a brigade exercise and then with the first two days we can identify that the logistics element isn't working effectively and therefore that will have a longer term impact on the exercise. Let's stop the exercise, recock it and then start again. That's creating efficiencies and saving money, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a training exercise piece. There's also a bit where if we're looking at, say, wargaming, we can look at different courses of action and start to predict the outcome of a particular course of action before it ends. And therefore, we can say we can start to discount them and go through a whole range of courses of action, whereas historically, you might only have analysed three courses of action. Using that technique, we can look at 50 courses of action, and it just speeds up and optimises the results of the planning process. So just gathering sufficient data to allow you to start looking at this kind of predictive end of analytics is somewhere we think that most training and operational types of analytics is heading for in the future. And then the last bit is something that's really useful in terms of the training side of life is diagnostic analytics. So how can you take data and then look back on previous historical data and start to make inference on training outcome? An example might be the way in which we shoot a rifle. I can talk about it later, but we've gathered sufficient data over the last three years that allows us to predict and diagnose the outcome of a shot and give feedback to the firer to help he or she improve the firing. It might be something along the lines of, we've recognized the fact that you are missing the target top right and looking at the way that you're holding the weapon, it means that you're not holding the trigger correctly. You should hold the trigger correctly on the next shot. So it's giving the individual that feedback through the data and actually the diagnostic side of the house, particularly if you're looking at how people learn at the individual level, giving them that feedback, making them understand what they're doing right or wrong is the real way in which people learn. It's really exciting because we've all been there. You're shooting at the target. To take this example, it's not working for you. If you had something that told you right there and then, as opposed to Sergeant Major shouting at you, oh, <laughs> you're not squeezing that, you know, the butt pressure's wrong or something or yeah. whatever, then you make that change. You, you learn faster. It's that OODA loop, isn't it? Yes, it's the individual OODA loop, I think. Helping everyone as part of the organisation, what part they play in the team and how can they get better to help that sum of all gains to then improve the overall team performance. Now, I'm interested in your feedback on this example, Al. So when I was at Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, they were doing some trials and testing around data. I don't know all the ins and outs, but they took a platoon and assessed their physical output and they assessed it against historical output from athletes and sports people. And and if they identified a drop in performance that was kind of incongruent with the trainee or the officer cadet, they were using that to be a predictor of risk of injury, even though the... Yep the officer cadet wasn't currently injured is where does that is that predictive is because then, then but then it's the question is what do you do with that data because do you pull them out of training before they injure themselves but that's that's on is that unfair on the officer cadet i mean what's your thoughts well i think that's we're getting into the world of the legal aspects of the use of data i think and i think the military's having to wrangle with this as they collect more and more data as we move towards for example in the future, the near future, defence is going to issue service personnel with some kind of monitoring system, be it a, a watch or a heart rate monitor. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be gathering loads of data, exactly as you described, Tom. And we could actually start to detect, for example, some kind of medical issues and predict medical issues through things like sleep patterns or heart rate differences. And the question is, as a capturer of data and an analyzer of data, what do I do? And then what does the military organization do with that information? Because it's got a a duty of care for its people. It's a shift in the way in which we use that information to benefit not just the organization itself, but actually we need to help people who've got problems and issues and and stop these types of things happening before it's too late. I think it's a really interesting legal question, moral question, about how we're going to use this data in the future and what impact it's going to have on, I hate using that, using that term, the workforce, but actually it's about empowering people in charge and individuals themselves to help them become a better part of the organisation because that's ultimately what the military is for, is to deliver effect, and it's all about the people. So by enhancing the ability of the people, then that's got to be a good thing. It has, but it's it's also challenging because we know that stretching before and after exercise is, is important and everyone tells you that it reduces the risk of injury but 
I know from my time in that not everyone does it and certainly don't do it religiously, even though the science, the data and the experts tell us that's the important thing to do to ensure or reduce that risk of injury. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink is, is the analogy I take. So I foresee a serious challenge of if someone's training for something, maybe they want to go on selection or whatever it might be, and they're being told that you've got to stop trying to train because you're at high, heightened risk of injury that just gets messy and really could affect morale of the individual and of the unit as well. I totally agree with you. And also you touched on a very good point around culture and actually this new world that we're facing and increased object objectivity in the use of data actually isn't necessarily a technology problem. It's actually a, a cultural problem because I'll give you a sort of a, a kind of example of what I call the who the hell are you face? So when I go to a customer, an organization, and they look at me and look at me strangely and, and try and explain to them why they should be using the data, I always get the who the hell are you face? And I and I love that face because it drives me forward to try and win these people around. An example of that is a couple of months ago, we were in 29 Palms doing a demonstration of the use of data for enhanced lethality using the, the marksmanship training system that we've got. And there's a, there's a rank in the US Marine Corps called Gunners, which I hadn't really heard of before. And they're the senior warrant officers in the US Marine Corps, and they are the world's experts in the use of tactics, the use of certain weapon systems. They are the gods in the US Marine Corps, and I'd never come across this group before. And if you can imagine a scene from Gunny Highway from Heartbreak Ridge, just meeting about five of Gunny Highways, but <laughs> even even more. And they were just a really uber-experienced, hard, hard men who knew their business inside out. And trying to convince them that they should be using data to help US Marines get better at essentially shooting. Somehow over the period of three days, with some help from some, I call them translators, but people who could help us translate UK speak into US Marine Corps speak, we managed to win them around. And they were massive converts by the end of it. But by God, it was difficult to begin with. And actually, we quite like that challenge of of changing people's opinion and changing the culture. And that's kind of what drives us because we can actually see the benefits of, of how you can better use objectivity. Now, we, we never say that we should stop using experience and subjectivity. We're just saying that use the data better to make a better decision. And that's all we're saying. So there's some really interesting areas to go into here. But before we do, I imagine the other half of the battle is actually accessing data. So you've talked about some of the ways you do it, but what sort of challenges do you get when maybe you have the question, but you go, well, how the hell do we get access? to this how big of a challenge is that a massive challenge that's something we've had to deal with over the years and it's maybe a bit of a differentiator about the way in which we go about doing our business and we like to call ourselves down and dirty experimenters or analysts because we like going into the field or we like sticking our fingers into simulation systems or other systems to try and figure out how we capture that data whereas some of the big analytics companies they don't really understand if you like the problem space so they don't really know where those real nuggets of information might sit. And I guess it's that skill or the understanding of the problem space that allows us to try and find that difficult data. And it, it is a massive challenge, but it's something that we've just had to learn how to deal with over the years. I guess it's also knowing stuff, isn't it? When you see the data, you know what that is, because someone who's not familiar with the military, how they work, you might look at this one piece of data and go, well, that's, that piece of data is about describing this parameter and, and actually someone that understands the system better or go no it's not it's actually describing a different thing so i guess misunderstanding what you've got is part yeah. of the issue just going back to the mantra of vision decision precision we're doing the opposite the precision is looking back at that data and then understanding what decision is trying to be made so that's why we've got to kind of reverse engineer it and go backwards and here's a classic Tom stupid question about data and the quality of data and, and how we use the data to influence maybe even operational decisions or tactical decisions and hopefully you can kind of clarify it. But at the moment, my understanding is a lot of data is generated through training. So it might be tears, blank fire, or whatever it might be. And that data that's generated could be used, assuming it's quality data, it's been generated or created in the right way, could be used to help inform how we produce or develop tactics for being on operations. Is there a risk that that data actually is flawed in some ways because it's not under the threat of, you know, you're trying to, like the example you gave was, trying to recreate Afghanistan in Salisbury Plain. Now that's the closest and the best that we you could achieve the budget and the timeframes you had available at the time. But how do you mitigate or how do you adapt the data to address the fact it's not in the natural habitat that it's going to be used in yeah. when it comes to the pointy end? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really fundamental question, Tom. It's, it's, it's a really good question, which is maybe not actually 
a data analytics problem. It's actually about a training realism problem because until we start closing that gap and we're, you know, we're never going to put our men and women in harm's way in training, but we've got to try and get them into that position where they're they feel as if they are in harm's way and they've got to be under that stress that means that you behave in a very different way. It's very different being shot at by a laser than it is be or or a pretend virtual round than it is actually when it starts going back at you. And we've we've all been there. The difference in the way in which you respond is a hundred miles different. And sadly, some of the, the younger service personnel have never had to experience that because of what's been happening over the last number of years and the operational tempo is so different. And um, we need to have a training system that replicates that as much as possible. And you're absolutely right. Unless we start replicating that effectively, we're not going to get the same responses in training that we're measuring to try and understand how they're going to perform in real life. That is part of our mantra as well, is we need to start educating people that, yeah, this data is only as good as the training realism that they undertake. And that's why it's really interesting how we're going to have to start fusing the virtual space with the live space, because we can't afford to train in the live space as much as we could before, which was as close to operations as we could possibly get. How is the virtual space going to start replicating that stress that you can only experience when, you know, down, dirty, cold, scared, et cetera, et cetera? Just going back to one of the points you raised before, the sort of the, I guess, the textbook approach to data analytics. What we're quite interested in is how that might change when you're faced with real problems with that might be specific to the military and those users. So maybe if you want to take us back to one of your use cases and take us through some of the realities that you might come across and go, well, this is how we have to differentiate from maybe a perfect process. What are the main learning points you've got from actually applying this science? What I might use is the, it's called Excalibur, which is our marksmanship trainer I was talking about. The reason I'm using that is because everyone in the military, regardless of what cat badge they are or what service they're in, has to shoot a weapon at some stage. It's quite a good case study. And we use that as a way of explaining to our customers if we can do this for shooting, what could we do for engineering or what could we do for collective training or what could we do for X, Y, Z? I'll talk you through the story of Excalibur. It all kind of started three years ago. We were doing a, a project for DASA, which is the Defence and Security Accelerator, which is looking at how we could take collective training data, extract it into an individual training record. And we were out in Kenya doing this testing and we were with, working with three para in the middle of the Ulu. And we're actually using the live firing practices that we're doing to start looking at how we could build up these training records into essentially the live firing package, which culminated in a, in a company level live firing activity. Chris Badley, my business partner, and I were sitting in the back of the range, watching soldiers pasting up targets, running up a distance of about 100 meters, counting the number of rounds that hit a target, then running back, writing it onto a piece of paper, and then putting it into essentially a bigger piece of paper to try and work out how well they were shooting at a target as a collective and a bunch of individuals. Again, the uh, who the hell are you face coming from a small arms school corps guy in Kenya who looked at us when we were babbling away saying, there's got to be a better way of doing this than this is so 60s. And I don't mean 1960, I mean it's 1860 in terms of the approach <laughs> that we have to feel, to feel foreign. So Chris and I sort of started sort of chatting and we said, we know how the targetry works. We know how we can collect not just the hit data on the target, but also the suppression data on a target. And there's a system called a, a Loma bar, which essentially is a, a set of microphones that sits in front of a target and it plots the X, Y, Z coordinate of a round as it flies supersonic through a particular space. So you're not just detecting what hits the target, but you can also detect how you're suppressing the target within a suppression envelope. And we also looked at how we could then get some data from the firer using the weapon system measure. And we used a system called Mantis X, which is, well, gun fans in the US use to improve their pistol and small arm weaponry usage. And what, what it does is essentially it's a gyroscope that sits on the weapon. It's tiny. And what it does is it's constantly measuring. If you think of a, an XYZ plot and a graph, a series of shapes as you move the weapon around and it records constantly and recognizes when you pull the trigger because it senses the round passing through the barrel, it recognizes, in effect, the bang, and it looks at seconds before you pull the trigger and seconds after you pull the trigger. Essentially, it creates a plot, an XYZ plot, it looks like a kind of three-dimensional snake, which you can start to then recognize certain pictures within that shape. So you can look at trigger snatch, 
you can look at not holding your weapon sufficiently close into your shoulder so it shakes. And therefore, as the round's leaving the barrel, it misses the target. So what we could do is measure the target effect and the weapon effect. And we thought, well, we need to also know where the, the soldier's firing from. So we got a cheap mobile phone, created an app took the data from the Mantis X, looked at the position of where the fire was, and then linked that from the phone into a database. And we got the information from the target linked into the database, and we started stitching it together to see what we could get. And that created a, a tool that allowed us to start looking at both collective and individual firing effectiveness through what we would call COTS or off-the-shelf systems using also what already existed within the military, which was the target tree and the, and the lower system. So it's MOTS, as it's called. And so we looked at this approach of, right, this isn't about the defense organization buying new systems. It's about integrating systems together at the data layer, essentially using software and analytics, to then look at ways of providing performance feedback. And that was the start of the genesis of a project that's been running both with the Royal Marines down at CTC. So as recruits come in, they are then assessed on how well they're progressing through the, the firing approach or the, the way in which we train firing. That lasted a year, that test. And then we did we were picked up by the British Army and we're just finishing off a year's worth of scaling at ITC Catrick. We'll be measuring two platoons, one platoon with the system and one platoon without and seeing what benefit and difference that approach to training has had. And the feedback we've had, we've just done the results. There's something like 15% increase in effectiveness or a reduction of about 20% in time it takes to get someone up to a particular standard. But the fact is we're actually measuring that standard as well. Mm. So it's making sure that the system's following its own processes. And we noticed that actually when we applied the system, it was more about as much about the instructor's and the organization following the process as it was about the trainees learning how to shoot better. So it had a mul- it had multiple effects on the way in which that fi- that firing was being trained. Yeah, I mean, 50% is great. When it comes down to something as crucial as rounds on target, ultimately it could boil down to a life and death decision. If you can increase that likelihood of, of hitting the target or suppressing the target by 15%, yes, please, I'll take that. But that's just the way in which we teach marksmanship. Imagine we then spread that out across other types of training. It could be driver training, it could be platoon tactics training, et cetera, et cetera, expanding it out across the piece and then start measuring the difference, the tangible benefits. Going back to your point is as we have this kind of blend more of virtual and, and live, mm-hmm. actually what impact does that have in terms of performance? Is that the right blend? Until you measure it, you don't know. I think the thing you said about platoon attack there flashed something up in my head. Is there a risk that the army becomes almost too data-centric and, and it stifles creativity? And what I mean by that is it's creativity in a combat scenario. It's, it's important when you're doing attack, it's about thinking about dynamically what's happening and, and trying to be creative in your approach to assaulting position and try to be different. Because ultimately, if it's doing it through a standard process, the enemy is going to have thought that, you know, if there's a clear ditch on the left-hand side of the approach, they're probably going to put claymores there. So how do you balance data versus creativity when it comes to these kind of things? The thing that we always say is, and I absolutely agree, having been that guy who's got to try and make a creative decision, is that it's as much about experience, but you've got to have the tools to then employ that experience. And what we always say is, what this data is doing is allowing you to get the basics absolutely nailed before you then start getting creative. Because at the moment, we're not quite sure if it's the creativity that's achieving the effect or it's the basics that's achieving the effect. And when we mm-hmm. start, me- and, you know, until we started measuring it, I'll give you an example. Until we started measuring the performance of recruits coming out of Catrick, no one really knew how well we were shooting before they were passed into the units. Now we've got a much better understanding. Until we nail that first, that type of basics first, then you can start applying the, the tactics experience except the, the other stuff, the other glues on top of it. And, and I just want to pull, pull out something you, you mentioned because it might have gotten lost. I think it bears repeating, but you're saying that actually the analytics affects not just the trainee, but the whole system. And certainly I felt that during aircrew training where, I mean, there might be a piece of information given at ground school you know, in the classroom there might be a piece of might be a piece of information that an instructor is delivering incorrectly or the wrong way. So the the real power is you're affecting the whole system, not just that individual. That's really interesting. I think what we we tend to use is uh, user stories. So the trainee or the the recruit or the person going through the training has a u- user story where they need to know particular bits of information. The, the observer mentor or the person who's training needs to have access to some information to help the individuals at the training and it goes it cascades up all the way up to the top where 
the key decision makers need to understand how well their organization is performing so they can understand what risk they're taking as they go on operations. Or it could be something along the lines of procurement decisions. Have we got the right equipment or are we training people correctly or X, Y, Z? really enjoying this chat and it has got to the 40 minute point now which is you know a good point to start to wrap things up from my perspective but i just wanted to pull you back to a point you made reference at the itc and, and troops leaving the uh, infantry training center in Catterick and kind of not having a quantifiable standard is that the case or is there still there is a kind of a minimum standard that exists when they do marksmanship training no you're absolutely right and they have to pass a particular test how well they pass or how well they fail first time round we're actually measuring. Previously, it's just you have passed, if that makes sense. So it's a box ticking exercise. Yeah. yeah. And from my experience with it, it is very much a process of training an infantry of which you've got to, you know, got to fit it in a certain time frame and it is a piece of paper and they're on the ranges. And today is a day where you've got to get your platoon through instructor yep. and you are, and, you you are there to support them to make sure they definitely get through on that day. Just to sort of back that up, what we found is actually by measuring it, say 20% of a platoon were actually up to scratch, but we still spent the entire time getting them up for going through the test. Actually, they already passed the test. We should have concentrated on the remaining 80% who weren't up to scratch mm-hmm. uh, and, and focusing, focusing what they were doing right or what they were doing wrong. Al, clearly a huge area, something we should all get our heads around. And, and it's, it's a shame we can't go on as ever. There's another episode there somewhere. But just to sort of wrap up, Could you just give us your reflection on where you think this all needs to go? What are the next challenges? What does the future look like for for data analytics in the military? I think the the biggest area that needs changed, I can see in the near term, is the after-action review. So at the moment, what we do is we still go through a process which hasn't changed, again, probably for at least 30 years. The after-action review process is you have a discussion which is very subjective about what you were asked to do and what you thought you did. And then you go through a review and you play back what you actually did. And it tends to be still very subjective. It's about observer mentors giving their opinion of what happened. Well, nowadays, today, you could start using some of that more objective feedback to help the observer mentor identify things that he or she couldn't see during that training activity. And using some of the analytics that we sort of discussed earlier, giving that feedback and going to a particular point and highlighting where you've done well and where you've done not so well. But using that objectivity rather than just an opinion means that individuals can actually feel as if they're being trained properly, they have been invested in, and also they can actually go into their own data and start going back to that point previously, start looking at the individual learning parts they need to look, they need to focus on as well as the collective. So I think the after-action review really does need a bit of a turbo boost, and it's something that we're massively passionate about and we're trying, to, we're trying to change at the moment. Well, great. We'll leave it there. And thank you, Al, again, a very instructional talk on things we may not know about how data analytics is actually used. And, and if anyone wants to know more, Al's organization is called Service. And uh, there'll be a link at the, in the show notes. Uh, do get in touch if you want to hear a bit more about what they do, visit their website, etc. Great. Well, thank you again. Oh, what a great chat. I've got to say, listeners can probably tell as I get into the flow of a conversation and get more excited about the topic and I come almost too energetic because I've got lots of questions and I, I really feel like we're getting somewhere. And it was the right balance, like I keep saying for an interview of information and data to giving them to us, but also with practical applications and dits and stories about how that's been applied in defense. So a really nice balance to an interview. So thank you, Al. Yes. Thanks again, Al, for that. And let's move on to the news. First time in 2023. Happy New Year to our journalist from MSNT, Andy Fawkes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Colin and Tom. Great to be back. Now, I don't expect much has happened while we're all <laughs> eating too much and relaxing over the last two weeks. So what I thought would be quite nice is for Andy to give us a bit of a look ahead at the sort of subjects and themes that we might expect to be probably more of a big deal in the next year. Yeah, what we're looking at here is our sort of predictions for 2023 for military simulation and training. There's quite a lot of source material from maybe the the wider technology industry. So I've been uh, reading some of the latest predictions from companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Gartner and Bohemia Interactive Simulations. I I think they're the only military simulation training company I've found who, who have done predictions. If there are others, please let us know. And also last week, a number of people went to CES, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and there was quite a lot of announcements made there, which I think are of interest. 
The first area you've picked on is, which we've covered, but it sounds like it's going to continue to be a subject, is that of AI. And, and there's a particular program that has caught fire recently. Yeah, it's ChatGPT. This comes out of OpenAI, which is a company and also a not-for-profit organisation. And they've launched it as a trial, but it's kind of exploded in IT circles. And if, if people, I'm not sure how far it's gone into the wider public, except I think maybe in the guise of people worried about plagiarizing documents or people using it in education to, to write essays. But there's <laughs> a lot more to it than that. I have to say I'm of a certain vintage in the 1990s when Google search came along and I'd been using other search engines. You just thought, this is just totally different. This is like, wow, this is amazing. I can say that I had the same feeling with this. I think it is amazing. It's not just me. I browse YouTube where you've got professional coders, people like that who think, yeah, this is pretty amazing. The interesting question for us is what does it mean for obviously training and wider uses of simulation beyond just helping you get beyond writer's block? I'd be interested to see what if either of you have tried it and what you think. I definitely agree with you. It's one of those moments in life when you look at something and say, this is different. And for those that haven't used it, it's getting a bit busy, so it's not always available. But the program effectively is a chat bot, but the responses it gives, it uses a lot of text that's been learning text that it's been fed, and it gives you sort of a much more human response. So you can have a conversation. So if it might give you an answer that's sort of incomplete. You ask it another question, so on, so on. It's a bit like someone's, your researcher, gone and researched a little subject, as opposed to Google search, which to sort of just give you the link when it, it, it won't give you a potted precy. But it's something where you, you look at and you say, this is very different. This is not the AI that I may have seen before that might be a bit underwhelming. It pretty much passes the Turing test, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I think also it's important to know that it's kind of learned from data, which is historic, historic in the sense it was 2021. So it's kind of reassuring to know I'm not completely out of work. So if you type in, can you predict technology predictions for this year, 2023? It nicely tells you you can't do that because it's based on older data. It does feel like it is a human saying, oh, I can't do that. So if you want the latest, then it's not going to put Google out of business straight away. But I think it's interesting that this technology apparently is going to be put on Microsoft Bing search. So it would be like you do a search and you'll get the latest, but you also might have some really nice context to the search come from chat GPTs, which I presume they'll busily get working on more recent data. I think the other interesting thing is if you could start deploying this as a company, if you put all your research reports and put these technologies you might end up with a sort of ai tutor who's they may not know everything but they probably know everything you've already done mm. probably sound like andy talking about old research projects <laughs> but, uh... i think it's important to look at people's experiences so it's automation isn't it it takes away the man the, the manual part of the work but it doesn't actually remove the need for the human to be a bit because some some of the answers can be just wrong because yeah. either the question hasn't been phrased properly or whatever. But what it does do is allow a human to do 10 times the work, which is the definition mm. of automation. You know, you always need that that operator in the loop somewhere. But Andy Fawkes Consulting could be writing 10, 10 reports, not one. <laughs> or, or you could have a, you, you have your robotic consultant and you know they're robotic, but actually you know they've trawled through everything that's done in the past. Yeah, I, I totally agree you need a human for some of this, but... I think the answers it gives, I mean, you can get wrong answers from humans. I'd say it's pretty good. Have a go, everyone out there. Also, if you're a programmer, whether it's 10 times as much work. So the Microsoft chair and CEO, Satya Nadella, who I think is very inspirational. He was interviewed last week in India, and he was saying that Microsoft own GitHub, and they've got a co-pilot, which helps programmers there. He's saying last week that 40 to 50% of the code is already being generated by AI. People are using it to generate AI. And again, if you trawl YouTube, you can see numerous people who've got a long heritage of doing programming. And they're saying, actually, this is really different. This is pretty amazing. It's certainly get you started and certainly producing quite nice code. As a human, if you don't like the code, you can say optimize the code and it comes up with better code. So yeah, go, go and have a look on YouTube. 
Yeah, we'll put links to it in the show notes. I've also found it fascinating and it does help with a number of things, just exploring different topics. You know, I've asked it to find the top 10 government podcasts of you know, 2021 and it'll list it out and give you a little synopsis of each one. It's just a good way, good way of conducting research. I mean, I found it. What I'd like to do, Andy, if you're willing to do this, is that next week or next episode, we'd pick a topic and use the chatbot to find an answer and we'll turn it into kind of a robotic audio response and play it back to the listeners to find out the kind of quality and content that could be generated with a training and simulation question what do you think yeah absolutely i do think we should give it a go if we can make the technology work that probably neatly takes us to your next area that you think will be of importance in 2023 data i'm sure some people might groan a little i mean we've been talking about data for years i think it is linked very much to the ai and machine learning because obviously if ai does require a lot of data i think also the ability to capture data through wearables wider xr technologies is just getting better i mean if certainly if you look at some of the headlines from ces last week just quite amazing what's going on in xr wider which we'll come to as bohemia put it Militaries will aggregate training data and leverage machine learning. And there are examples of companies out there that are doing this in pockets, I would say. But whether defence enterprises are waking up to this, I don't know. Maybe either Colin or Tom, you've seen where your MODs or DODs are doing this on an enterprise basis saying, yeah, we're going to capture all training data or all the data that matters. We know what sort of data we need to capture. We've worked out how we're going to apply machine learning to it. If anyone's got examples of that. Certainly we're seeing some early steps, yeah, steps in the right direction. It's definitely early days with all these topics. It's like, when do we expect it to really blossom, I guess? And that's the difficult thing to predict. I think the problem for defence is that they are blossoming in industry, many industries already. Is can defence catch up? Mm. Uh, the third area then, Andy, just because you sort of mentioned it for 23. Yeah, so I want to use the M word, the metaverse, but it's also linked to extended reality. I know we've gone probably post-hype now with metaverse, but I just think the fundamentals in terms of convergence of technologies, whether you want to call it metaverse or not, is just happening. Extended reality, there was a lot of new headsets being launched last week, but also Crucially, some of the technologies in terms of the eye, the waveguides bring, I mean, we've spoken about XR and the US military and the IVAS system, but the waveguides to bring in the sort of visual artifacts in front of your augmented reality glasses are just uh, some really exciting things going on there. Rather mundane, but the processing, I think we've mentioned Snapdragon before, but you know, the miniaturization of these technologies will mean much better technology in terms of xr um htc launched a brand new headset which is perhaps more competitive than the meta quest pro again if you're in the business have a look at that i think quite a novel idea of quite a versatile bit of kit so it's certainly blending moving very much more to the mixed reality construct the, I mean, the interesting thing for me will be to see whether the term metaverse sticks around this year because we've already seen some of the larger companies we were talking about it last year sort of revise their when they were doing this sort of look back that word didn't appear anymore now the underlying technologies are still there you know that doesn't go away and as you say Andy there's still in fact there was an interesting leak of something Apple are doing so there's some really there's a lot of money going into the mixed reality virtual reality headset and hardware but yeah, I wonder what the term will be. Yeah, I, I think people are using it less, but I mean, that's probably a good thing. Again, the Microsoft CEO mentioned it last week. Amazon didn't. Bohemia did. Gartner do. NVIDIA, well, obviously huge in graphics, they do. So I think it will just keep there. But fortunately, it will just go toned down a bit. Because the thing is, the fundamentals in terms of both the technology and the user's need or the use cases, particularly, I would say, in engineering and the non-personal base, I think the use cases are still there. Maybe some people will be happy that it goes away, but I just think if you do, you can't forget the trends that are, are going on. I'm going to make a new year resolution if and when we do speak to people and they do mention the n-word I think the first thing I'll ask them to do is just clarify what they mean by it because it is a catch-all and I, I think that people mean different things when they say it and I'll, I'll let it slide this time in terms of what you mean by the metaverse but when we have guests on I'm just going to ask them to clarify what they mean by it to allow us to build context around their perspective of the definition of the metaverse I think that was the point of mentioning it that we we're not necessarily able to define it. We were just wondering whether the word will keep around this year. It'll be called something else if it isn't called the metaverse. <laughs> then we'll have to define that. Because if you... Oh, what, what is it? 
if you what is it well i think that there's plenty out there to be fair nvidia see it as the next generation of the internet and that's what they actually say so i mean there are plenty of people have said it but the, the thing is it's like cyberspace if i was say what is cyberspace i think people would come up with different ideas the trouble is if you want to be wrapped around that axle then that's fine but i do feel that there's plenty of people have written about it already and I'm not, I'm not sure it's an axle I'm getting wrapped around. I think I'm just trying to understand, like NVIDIA saying that it's the next generation of the internet. Still, that isn't, that's just words. That isn't anything. That doesn't help me understand what it is. Okay, well, we'll come back to that theme. To move on. Yeah. There's two other areas that you've identified. Can you take us through those? Again, cloud. I say the cloud because there's obviously your Amazons and Microsofts. It's in their interest to talk about cloud and what it means and also nvidia i mean i was very struck last week with nvidia's announcement they're working with car companies to be able to stream geforce now which is cloud gaming into cars so that means you could your children or whoever could sit in the back and play a triple a game and what i mean by that is like the best graphics are streamed into your car and you can play the game there so you don't need a console or any very lightweight processing in your car this is really interesting i think for the military you know, does this mean we're going to be able to stream simulation or other digital content straight into your barracks in the same way even maybe into your tank i think it's just very interesting the cloud and what's going on there but i again on an enterprise level and maybe our listeners have got examples of this on a truly enterprise level are there militaries out there saying we're going to go for cloud first simulation we're going to invest in the networks to support it the technology the software has to be cloud ready we've decided what's going to be private and what's going to be uh, public cloud. I think there's quite a long journey there. I totally agree. You see the early green shoots of it, and certainly things like Cabinet Office have a cloud-first policy, but that takes a while to filter to the military for a number of reasons, infrastructure, that sort of thing. So will it increase in 23? I'm pretty sure it will. But will it come of age? Well, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely reliant on the defence IT infrastructures, and we know that's quite challenging. But it's certainly one to keep watching, and there's huge amounts of excitement in the IT industry on that one. If we're just moving to the final point, and I've put gaming only because I think whether that is a trend or just a continuous driver, or I've just mentioned gaming and cars, you know, I'm personally not terribly interested in that. But having said, but I think as a driver of innovation, gaming is going to still be out there. It's driver in XR, I think as well. So a, a driver in AI and in data. So I think it's more of a driver than a trend. In your notes, Andy, you put, will it keep on giving? And I think that is probably an interesting theme that we will see gaming keep on giving. I've often said to people, we'd be fools not to leverage what the game industry does but i think that's been the true for about 10 years isn't it at least well i would say chat gpt andy would say 20 and even into the 90s and if you go far back enough even in the 80s the originators of simnet were looking to the outside of defense industry into gaming they were aware of these technologies so i think our industry's got a long heritage of looking at gaming and i think if you're in the business you've just got to see what people are doing in this space even in areas like data, it's just extraordinary. So one to watch. Well, thanks, Andy. Uh, Tom, you got anything to add to that? No, brilliant. Maybe we'll re- revisit this at kind of Christmas 2023 and, and see where we've got on the predictions and where the industry has moved to. And thank you, Andy, again, for uh, a good insight into what ha- what's happening in 23. And probably just to cover off the metaverse issue, issue just shows what a big topic it is and so many views there are definitely warrants at least one episode in the near future yeah and I, look, i've had to edit that down a bit where we went off talking about that on the actual news segment we are very keen to make sure that this podcast doesn't become an echo chamber we want to make sure that we all are independently minded and we, we therefore can have those healthy discussions and debates but it, giving it an episode or two to be able to really dig into it because it is so relevant right now to explore it and to try and understand it better and like you say, yeah, and then revisit it a year's time and see where it's where it's going to be great. So moving on and just to wrap up, I think thank you so much if you've stuck with us so far. We really, really do appreciate uh, your time and your engagement, specifically you know, on LinkedIn, on an email as well. The liking, the commenting. We've had some great people you know, just sharing the podcast saying this is a great resource. Please continue to listen to it. And to you guys that are doing that, thank you very much. If you want to send us an email, it's, it's I can't remember. Can you remember? I think it's contact. Yeah, it's contact. Tom, have you made the email for us, contact at warfighter.com? Yeah. 
Contact at warfighterpodcast.com. Well, it's worry. You see, this is it. You don't, you don't understand marketing, Colin, all right? Poor voice post, Colin. You know it. Well, that, that is a geeky comment, mate. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking marketing and branding. Contact, warfighter. Rawr, you see? <laughs> Wait out. It's a reserved <laughs> word. You can't yeah. use it. And... Brilliant. Well, uh, yeah, it's contact at warfighterpodcast.com. And just Warfighter Podcast on LinkedIn. Please do go there and share and like. That's all from me, Colin. Anything from you? No, that's all for me. Thanks again. Mega. Have a great couple of weeks. 